We're on the record. I'm Sheila Cast. Good morning. Most of us, at some point, worry about our weight. For some, that worry dogs us, takes on a life of its own. Lawyer Rabia Chowdhury tells her version of that ordeal and what it took to put the misery behind her in her new book, Fatty, Fatty, Boom, Boom, a memoir of food, fat, and family. She'll discuss it at the Enoch Pratt Free Library tomorrow evening. Chowdhury's earlier book, Adnan's Story, her argument that the investigation and prosecution of Adnan Sayed for the murder of his classmate Hay Min Lee in 1999 had been mishandled, became an HBO special. The charges against Sayed were dropped this fall. She's also co-produced and co-hosted podcasts like The Undisclosed. Welcome to On the Record, Rabia. Hi, thank you for having me, Sheila. You were born in Lahore, Pakistan. You were just six months old when your family moved to the U.S., and food already was a charged issue for you, although baby Rabia probably didn't know it yet. Explain that early time. Yeah, I, I was very much almost at the mercy of uh, the Nestle Corporation right out of the womb because in, in the 1970s, there was like this big campaign uh, in the subcontinent, at least, um, for mothers to be told that breast milk is not good for your children. It carries disease and that all the women in the West are now using um, formula. And so my mom was sent home with me with formula and, um, and and told very strongly, do not breastfeed. You know, it's not good for the baby. And my grandfather looked at that box of formula and said, absolutely not. I'm not going to, I don't know what's in this. These are chemicals. You cannot give this to the baby. It's okay if you don't want to breastfeed. But then she's getting buffalo milk. So he literally bought a buffalo to tie in our front yard. And as a newborn infant, this I'm was, being said. This rich, was in Pakistan. This was in Pakistan, rich, fatty buffalo milk. Um, but it got worse when I got to America. <laughs> yeah. How so? Um, well, what happened was I, I then eventually got jaundice. I lost a bunch of weight. And my so my mother and father, they immigrated here. And my mother was an immigrant suddenly without um, like the village to help her raise the baby. And uh, I was a scrawny little thing at this point. And she asked a friend who was a nurse, you know, I, how do I chub her back up? You know, she doesn't even look healthy. And uh, Auntie, her name was Sheila as well. Auntie Sheila said, just give her a little bit half and half. And my mom didn't understand what she meant. And she gave me bottles of half and half. Um, and when I began teething, she gave me frozen sticks of butter to teeth on because she thought it'd be good for me. There's just this concept back home that giving babies really rich dairy products um, is actually good for them, and I got a lot of them. Your mother was, your mother is a formidable woman. Yes. Tell us a little about her. Yeah, Ami was uh, kind of a you know a unicorn for 1974 Pakistan. She was 27, not married, a working woman. I mean, very rare. Didn't want to get married. Kept rejecting proposals. Just wanted to work. And finally, her father was like, I'm dying. You've got to say yes. And she said, OK, fine, I'll, I'll grudgingly say yes. I don't even care who the guy is. Um, but beyond that, she's always been kind of this larger than life um, figure. Just as the eldest of seven, she was used to kind of running the home. And then by the age of 20, she was running an entire school. Um, so, yeah, she's 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 still running the joint at 75. <laughs> what was your life like growing up? I mean, it was really charmed. I look, I my my mom, had, my mother had another uh, daughter at um, when I was two years old, but she, we she gone back to Pakistan, had my little sister, and then left her there for another few years. So I kind of was raised as the only, and then brought came back with me, and I was raised as the only child for like four or five years. And my parents 
loved food, and America was the land of abundance. They had never seen or heard of such foods in their lives. They ate it all, and they fed it all to me. And it, fed, it felt like love to all of us, but it 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 wasn't. <laughs> At the end of the day, none of it was really good for us. And we really leaned into convenience foods and fried foods and fatty foods um, and, and processed stuff because to the immigrant mind, um, what you can find in America is good and pure because the American government wouldn't feed its citizens anything that wasn't good and pure. Um, and we heard that a lot growing up, that the food here is pure, but the food back home is not. During elementary school and, and your teenage years, did you think of yourself as fat? You know, I kept hearing these messages, you got to do something. You got to do something about this, you know, just lose 10. It, it was never like, it was always like just 10, 15 pounds, just 15, 20 pounds. And to my mind, I, and I would look in the mirror and I'm like, I think I'm okay. <laughs> and I, my mind, I was real nerd. So all I cared about was like reading and just, you know, doing real nerdy things. And I wasn't too concerned about it. I, there were moments, you know, uh, when I, when I was, it kind of felt like, well, maybe I should. And I started jogging, I think when I was like 11 or 12 for a little, for a very brief period but it wasn't an overwhelming concern. I certainly didn't feel any self-loathing around it or, you know, and, and when my parents said these things to me and my family did, um, it didn't feel malicious. It really felt like a place of love. And I'm like, oh, they're just whatever. They love me. It's not a big deal. It wasn't until my first marriage, which was um, a really abusive marriage that, you know, then it felt co those comments were clearly malicious and hateful. And that's what led me into getting to a place where I finally did hate myself. And I want to ask you about that. And let me just say first, this is lawyer and author Rabia Chaudhry on the record on WYPR. I'm Sheila Cast. We're talking about her compelling new memoir, Fatty Fatty Boom Boom, a memoir of food, fat, and family. This book is such a page turner, so well written. Dozens of characters, high points, low points, hilarious events, humiliating incidents. I'd like listeners to hear a snatch of your writing, the point when the title of the book first appears in the text. And first, set, set the scene for us. You're in Pakistan for a big family gathering for the wedding of an aunt, and you're 11 years old. Yeah, I'm 11 years old. This is like the, 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 the trip of our dreams because I had never witnessed a Pakistani wedding, and it was like something we saw in films and stuff, and I was very excited. And my aunt was like a princess bride, and so <clears throat> this is like in the middle. And, and these weddings take forever, so it was like weeks and weeks of this kind of stuff. But... So this is me just sitting and uh, and my uncle, Bummy Mama, one of my uncles um, who I love very dearly and who has been tubby his entire life, starts speaking to me. So I'm just going to pick it up there. Oye Morty, no one will marry you. My middle uncle, Bummy Mama, crooned at me at the back of my nanny's house. That means grandmother. Half teasing, half concerned. Morty, fat female, was one of many nicknames I collected during that trip. I was also Golgappa, shaped like a spherical street snack stuffed with chickpeas and potatoes. Fatty Fatty Boom Boom, my Thaya's son Rahman said affectionately to me as we were having breakfast one morning. I halted mid-bite, but he softened. No, no, eat. See, I'm a Fatty Fatty Boom Boom too. And he was. Rahman was huge, nearly six foot four and likely 250 pounds. But very quickly, I learned it didn't matter for men. I pointed out to Pummy Mama, who had gone through multiple engagements but was still not married, that he was no Mr. Universe either with his, with his paunchy gut. He leaned close and said, Morty, don't you understand? Men can look like anything as long as they have good jobs and homes. But girls cannot look like middle-aged women before they're even married. There's so much in that, uh, starting with the nicknames that you had to live with, but also 
this idea that getting married was the whole point, that, I mean, for a lot of American girls in the 1980s, getting married was an option, but in your culture, nothing else mattered. For parents, it's not just like, this is not a pressure that they feel, uh, it's an internal pressure. If they cannot get their children married and settled, and believe me, when when kids there get married and, and kids in our culture get married, families are getting married. Um, and if they can't do that, they have failed their duty. Like God has assigned this duty to them and they have failed it if they can't get their kids married, like literally. So it's, um, yeah, and it does, it kind of doesn't matter. And this is true for men and for sons and daughters that if your son is 35 and he's not married, people are like, something is deeply wrong. It doesn't matter if he's like, you know, uh, if he's the vice president of the country, <laughs> it just doesn't matter. Um, you can be highly success- successful, but if you have not settled down, you've literally just, um, what's the purpose of your life if you are not ha- getting married and having children? What's the purpose? So fast forward 10 years, you're studying at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. You still have a tense relation with food. Instead of the freshman 15, you gain 25 pounds your first year. And then you decide to marry even earlier than your parents wanted. What was behind that? Yeah, you know, I grew up with these messages of nobody's going to want to marry you. Like there's just, you know, and I also would hear, I would hear conversations, like kind of whispered conversations that people are getting interested in Lily, my younger sister. Like we're interested for our son, for Lily, but it's improper to send a proposal for a younger sister if the older one isn't taken taken already. So people would say, is Rabia already, are you guys talking to somebody for Rabia so we can like look at Lily? Um, and it wasn't happening. And I, and you know, I was like, oh my God, I'm like in the way of my little sister getting married. And I met this young guy and, um, and he was charming and had all the swag and um, just swept me off my feet. And very, like, within meeting me a few times, said, I want to marry you. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm going to prove everybody wrong. And I jumped at it. And I and I also, you know, I, I was charmed by him. I thought he was very handsome and cute, and so did my friends. And I thought, this is, I am proving, you know, 20 years of, of messages wrong. And um, I immediately said yes, without really seeing the red flags there. Because it turned out to be an abusive marriage and also a very traditional Muslim situation, Pakistani. Oh, I would say Pakistani situation, yeah. <laughs> Where he, because he was he was here as a student from Pakistan. He was studying um, civil engineering. And he had told me, you know, and, you know, I thought this was his way of, you know, and, and I'm sure it was of connecting and kind of sharing his childhood that his father, um, he had watched his father beat his mother his entire life. And when he told me that, I was shocked because I had never seen my father do anything like that. And I felt so much empathy and sympathy, not understanding this, how cycles of abuse work and how when he is also going to be in a marriage, he's probably, unless he's worked and, you know, prof- with gotten some professional help, he's going to react like that. And that's what he did. He just fell right into that cycle immediately. In that marriage, you were expected to cook for him and his parents and family. Ten, ten in-laws. Um, I lived with all ten and I had to cook. I had to make sure I had lunch and dinner for all of them each day. While you were finishing college? While I was in law school, while I was working a part-time job, and I had a baby. Yeah. I was surviving. A decade ago, when I would see you speaking publicly in defense of Adnan Sayed, the charges against him for the 1999 murder of Heyman Lee have now been dropped, I had no sense that you were engaged in a great struggle with your weight. How did your weight affect your life as a professional woman? 
You know, I was very good, as as many of us are, um, at uh, maintaining a public persona that would completely collapse when I got home. That would collapse when I got back to the hotel room because I was traveling a lot and speaking a lot. Um, you know, there was I. My mission, at least in that period of time, was just to keep advocating for Adnan and bringing the attention to um, the misconduct in the case and the issues in this and, and how our justice system works and what's all broken. Um, and, you know, but it would be tormenting because everybody wanted to get a picture with me and post a selfie. And, you know, and I would see those when I got back home. But also I'd get back home and I would peel myself out of my clothes and um, and I would just feel terrible um, because you know, it does happen that you get ready for an event, you look at the mirror, you're like, okay, I think I look okay. And then people start posting pictures online and you're like, oh gosh, I look terrible. And um, it shouldn't matter. And I never let it be known publicly that it even mattered, but I felt a lot of despair. And self-loathing, self you write about. A lot of self-loathing, yeah. Just because it was, I couldn't understand. I'm like, how is it that I'm able to accomplish so many other things? I've survived domestic violence i've survived sexual assault i've survived a lot of things why can't i overcome this i couldn't figure it out i just felt helpless we need to pause in our conversation with rabia chaudhry about her new book fatty fatty boom boom a memoir of food fat and family she'll be at the enoch pratt central branch tomorrow evening to discuss it when we're back how chaudhry took control I'm Sheila Cass. Stay with us. Welcome back to On the Record, Sheila Cast. Rabia Chowdhury's new book is as funny and delicious as its title, Fatty, Fatty, Boom, Boom, a memoir of food, fat, and family. For decades, Chowdhury absorbed from relatives messages that entwined love and food and strained to keep them from undercutting her work as a lawyer and advocate. Rabia, at several points in your story, I felt like you were about to break through and be in control. One of them was after you and your first husband had separated. Describe how you used that independence. Yeah, I, um, for those first like eight months, my ex had custody of my of our young daughter and I would have her on the weekends. So the whole week, other than work, in the evenings, I was as free as I'd ever been. I didn't have to cook for 10 people. I didn't have a baby. Um, so I just started hanging out at the gym and I felt great. I mean, I lost a bunch of weight. Um, I was eating really well. And, you know, I, the, what was happening at the time was actually, I was finally getting time for myself and giving time to myself. But, you know, a lot of working moms, especially don't feel like they're entitled to time. Our time comes after we take care of everybody and everything else. If there's time, maybe we get it rather than, and I, my com mentality around that completely changed four or five years ago, because since then, what I've started doing is I schedule my time in the gym or a massage or the nail salon, whatever. First, I schedule my week and everybody else has to work around it. Um, so, yeah, I got close, but then life happened again. And um, and I couldn't give myself the time that I needed. 
After a lot of failures to control your weight through diet and exercise, you opted for gastric surgery. Looking back, was that the right move? Yeah, I had gastric sleeve, the sleeve in 2015 because my understanding was it was, uh, you know, much less invasive and easier to recover from. I have had many moments of regret, especially all the times that I vomited as I was trying to eat something. Um, the first year was really difficult. I suffered depression. This is a great loss in your life of food that brings you comfort. Um, and I certainly was an emotional eater. Uh, I don't regret it looking back. And one of the reasons is this. Um, I I don't know why. Uh, this is not something I've been able to unpack yet. But up until I had the gastric sleeve surgery, I wasn't ever able to feel full. I never quite felt hungry, but I would always, I wasn't like physically hungry, but I felt starved in a different way. And I would eat and eat and eat and I would never feel full. And I would marvel at people who eat half a sandwich, say I'm full, I'll save this for later. And I'm like, what do you mean? I don't know what that feels like. And to this day, I don't know if that was that's emotional or it was physiological, but after getting the sleeve, I have finally been given the gift of knowing what it feels like to feel full. And it feels good. I feel, oh, this is what it's like for other people. Because you, so, yeah. you eat, but just you can't eat very much. Yeah, I mean, my the, the, look, the sleeve is, uh, and I, I got the sleeve at a time when about I knew about six or seven other women getting it. Um, almost every woman I know who got it lost a tremendous amount of weight, gained much of it back because it slims your stomach, but like any muscle or skin, it'll stretch again with eating. So yeah, I if I want, I can eat a significant meal now. And my sleeve is not helping me lose weight anymore. If I eat what fits in my sleeve now, I maintain basically. And even that's the gift because, you know, m most of my life, it was just a constant steady climb a con every month, a couple of pounds up, a couple of pounds up, even if I didn't eat any more or less. I'm going to skip over a lot to ask this. You you take us through so many ways you tried to deal with your weight. In your 40s, you write, you've learned that your body is not the enemy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I happened, and I explain how um, to start personal training um, because uh, I met a woman who's told me that she got personal and I, well, that was the one thing I hadn't tried I had tried everything I ran five miles a day I did elliptical I did every diet on the in the universe I st climbed to the stairmaster I mean like name it I did it um I had never tried a personal trainer first of all they're very expensive but I was like you know what I'm just going to give this a shot for a little bit um just for a few months and at that point I'm in my 40s and I have absolutely no hope that at this age that my body can even would even respond it wouldn't respond in the 20s how is it going to respond now and I was introduced for the first time to weight training and strength training. And within months, my body completely changed. It was responding to everything. I didn't run a single lap. I had lost 40 pounds. I had gained muscle. I was flipping tires and jump. I mean, doing things I thought would break my knees. Um, and that's when I realized all this time, my body was not the enemy. My body, I just, I didn't know what to give her. I didn't know what my body needed. And I tried everything and I felt like she was the one failing me when really um, all I was failing her. And that's because I had been given wrong information most of, much of my life, like most people. This is On the Record. I'm Sheila Cast speaking with Rabia Chowdhury about her new book, Fatty, Fatty, Boom, Boom, a memoir of food, fat, and family. She'll discuss it tomorrow evening at the Pratt Library Central Branch. Each chapter title reflects a Pakistani dish. How is that food connected to the stages of your life you're writing about? 
even though the central theme of this book is like is the weight loss journey i mean you cannot divorce it from the the food and when i th- thought about like all the conversations i would have with my friends around losing weight in that same conversation sometimes in the same breath we would talk about what we wanted to eat next <laughs> um and so i also uh, discovered that you know in the last 4 or 5 years since i've finally like kind of figured out my body and what it needs in response to that i finally given my permission myself permission to love food and until then it was like food was either punishment um i wasn't allowed to eat it but i'd eat it but if i ate it i'd have to hate myself for it i'd have to hate the food um but i craved it it was an extremely uh dysfunctional relationship um now i and you know and 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 the thing is people think you know people make fat people think that we don't deserve to eat anything that is good or just even eat but we have to live right so everybody deserves to have a good relationship food with delicious deserves to have abundance in their life nobody deserves deprivation and um but these are the things that i had to finally be, be able to accept and say and i'm so happy i did that i it's okay to love my food um and i realized in my 40s the food i really love is the food that like you know ties me to my roots it's wholesome it's healthy it's good for me it's not processed it's i i see every ingredient i'm putting in and it makes me feel full it's hard for me to put what those thoughts you described that love hate relationship you had with food put that together with the fact that you are a very good cook i i happen to be and that does complicate things yes <laughs> well i can't get away from it you close the book with some favorite recipes why Oh gosh, you know, I because I do cook a lot, I host a lot. If I tweet a picture of a cup of chai, I get 20 requests, 30 requests for how did you make I can you have the recipe. Years ago, I had a friend who was like, "I just please just give me." And I I literally made her a private cookbook on Google Drive. Um, here's recipes for this. Here's, so people who know me personally, have eaten my food are always asking like for recipes and I thought I've described all these amazing foods in the book or as you're reading it in the narrative. I would feel like I'm really depriving my readers from the opportunity to try to make them and recreate them themselves and then those those recipes also have stories with them and so even if you don't cook I would encourage people to at least read the the stories connected to the recipes in the back. I think I learned more about your Pakistani relatives, your grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins than your immediate family in the US. Does that reflect your Pakistani family's outsized impact on your food issues or is that your lawyer's attention to privacy for those clients No no not no it wasn't that really it was I mean you know my it, only because like, I'm the eldest of 3 but by the time I was 18 I was out of the house you know so I, I went away to college I got married very shortly thereafter I moved out of state and so you know my siblings other than like marveling at how my sister had a very different palate and body type My, me and my siblings really didn't talk about this stuff. They never, you know, although there were times when my sister who has a naturally uh, slender physique would say, "Robbie, it's just calories in and calories out." And I'm like, "My body won't out the calories. I don't know what to do." <laughs> um there wasn't a whole lot there, but no, my my immediate relatives here are just, you know, we're small families. My parents and my parents obviously feature heavily in the book up until the end. Like when I had lost a bunch of weight, my mom's like, "You need to stop losing weight." <laughs> so, um, yeah, your mom, adult, your mom when you were losing that 40 pounds, she she thought you had cancer. 
she kept saying, you must, you're lying to me. I said, I don't, I'm just, I'm going to the gym. I'm lifting weights. Uh, but my dad in his seventies got very inspired and started going to the gym and lifting weights too. That was great. You know, by a less skillful writer, this memoir could have been humiliating instead mm -hmm. of entertaining and insightful. Why did you choose to write such a candid book? I imagine the reader to be somebody like me who um, has struggled with this issue their entire lives and also has had very hilarious moments, but very dark moments, who has no way, you, you know, no person struggling with their weight can divorce it from constantly trying to figure out what to eat and when to eat and how to eat and being told what to eat, when to eat, how to eat. Um, and so the, uh, there was no way to write any part of the story without the others. Like they're all just married deeply for me. So, you know, at the same time, I, when I look at these stories, when I look back at my life, there are dark moments, but for the most part, because I have felt overwhelmingly loved by my family, um, and I know they're proud of me. Like I, it, it. That's why it has a kind of a light-hearted, overarching kind of sense. Um, and it's, it's not a heavy read, I don't think, for people. Um, so that's how I, I, I'm, I'm very glad the book reflects basically how I feel about these things. This is how I remember the stories, and this is how I carry them. Well, congratulations. Thank you so much. It's a great read. Thank you. Thank you, Sheila. It means a lot. Rabia Chowdhury's new memoir is Fatty Fatty Boom Boom, a memoir of food, fat, and family. Tomorrow evening, she'll discuss the book in conversation with Marsha Chatelain, history and African-American studies professor at Georgetown University. It starts at 7 p.m. at the Enoch Pratt Free Library Central Branch, 400 Cathedral Street, part of the Pratt's Writer's Live series. We have information at the On the Record page at wypr.org. I'm Sheila Cast. Glad you're with us on the record. Come back tomorrow.